This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Enrique Dubergras, co-founder and co-CEO of Brex, a fintech unicorn most recently valued at more than $12 billion. Enrique, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I was reading online and I see you sold your first company, Pagarmi, very early in your entrepreneurial journey. So let's start there. What did Pagarmi do and what did you learn from that experience of building and selling that company so early on? Yeah, so we actually started in 2013. We sold it in uh, 2016. We basically did online payment processing for businesses. So you can imagine like Stripe, but in Brazil. Got it. And then when you sold the company, what was that experience like for you? And how old were you when you sold the company? When I started around 16 with my co-founder, Pedro, who was the same co-founder here at Brex, we sold it three and a half years later. So maybe it was like 19 and a half or so. I sold it to basically come to the U.S. to go to college here. And it was an amazing experience, I would say. Like, you know, it definitely got me to experience adulthood uh, pretty early. Basically, you know, managing companies like 150 people, had tens of billions in revenue. It was very profitable. So it was like a whole, I would say, real entrepreneurial experience of building a company. So it was, uh, it was very, uh, I wouldn't have been able to start Brex without going to that before. And where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from? I saw in another interview that you said your mom was a labor judge, which seems a bit almost anti-entrepreneurship. So where did entrepreneurship come from you and, and where did that bug come from? Yeah, like I was a coder as in those pretty young. I started coding when I was 12 years old because there was this game I wanted to play. It was a paid game and I figured out if I could learn how to code, I could play it for free. So, you know, the first version of it came from basically wanting to play games and learning how to code. And then until so I got like these legal notifications when I was 14, say, saying I was breaking some sort of patents. I didn't really know what patents were, but my mom got pretty upset and told me to shut everything off. So that was kind of how I started out in entrepreneurship. And then at this point, I was a little bit like, hey, what do I do with my life? I'm having this, I don't know, someone said one eighth of life crisis instead of midlife crisis. And uh, I started watching TV shows and started watching a TV show called Chuck that was a really good computer hacker programmer that went to Stanford. Um, and I wanted to be just like Chuck because he was awesome. And I realized I needed to go to Stanford. So I basically decided that. And But the whole application process was pretty complicated for non-Americans. So I found this Brazilian guy on Facebook that was graduating from Stanford and starting a startup. And uh, we talked and you know I convinced him to basically teach me how the process worked and write me a recommendation letter in exchange for me to coding for his startup for free. So I would say it was a, it was a win-win there. And uh, that's when I kind of got into all the startups, you know, I, I saw him doing it. I thought it was pretty amazing. And I decided I wanted to be like an entrepreneur as well, but kind of experience started reading TechCrunch, startup battles, you know, all this stuff sounded like super cool and interesting and like young people changing the world. The whole Silicon Valley cliche that we've read and known for a long time. So I worked there for a year. And then after a year, I dropped out. I, I left to start to try to start my own business. So I started an education company that failed miserably. And that's, you know, when my mom was like, you know, I'm done. And I had to basically like move out of my house, get emancipated, you know, kind of like support myself on my own. 
So that's when I, I found a hackathon in Miami that was $50,000. And I was like, oh, if I can win this thing, you know, I can support myself for longer. So I went there uh, with two friends, built this dating app, won the hackathon, came back to Brazil, tried to launch it as a business, but it didn't really work. And that's, uh, you know, around when I met Pedro, my co-founder, and inside of Star Garbage. But that's kind of like, I've been trying to do entrepreneurship, I would say, in some version of another since I was 12. And I think it came a lot from just gaming and wanted to, you know, build startups. Nice. That's so amazing. Now, I know outside of your role as a founder, you also sit on the boards of some major companies and some major brands that I know the audience is going to be familiar with. What has that experience been like for you sitting on the board and, and what have you learned from it overall? Yeah, I sit on two boards. One is Expedia, one is Mercado Libre. Both of them are really interesting and quite different. I think that being a board member allows you to give you know the team the perspective without getting attached to the details. And I think it just changed how I think about my own board, you know, and like how I think about my own board members and trying to understand when they give advice, kind of like where they're coming from. And a lot of times I got upset. It's like, you don't know what I'm talking about. You know, like this is so detached from our reality. But I think that that detachment from reality actually helps from time to time and like gets you to be at like a 20, 30,000 foot view. So I think like I definitely run a better board and a better company because I joined those boards and I'm not in any of the committees that people say are kind of boring, the audit or comp or any of these things. I don't think I'm super qualified for any of them. So I think that, you know, it's not as much as a time suck as everyone says for me, at least. And I learned a lot. So I have a positive experiences. And a couple of other questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? It's hard to admire like one founder the most. You know, I think like I identify myself with different parts of different founders. So I would say like, I really like more on the B2B side, uh, Larry Ellison and Mark Benioff. I think they're, they're both amazing and basically like making enterprise software sexy, right? Like back in the day, Oracle was like the big thing, you know, Salesforce is a big thing. And, you know, if you think there's two pretty boring pieces of software, right? Like CRMs and, uh, you know, databases and ERPs and they're able to like make it like super sexy and super interesting and, you know, drive a lot of change in the world through those businesses. So I think that's, that's super cool. Allison being like, what I think is super cool is I don't obviously don't agree with everything that he does and he has, you know, a pretty mixed reputation, but being like both a technical person that understands product really deeply in the technicalities, but also an amazing go-to-market person, you know, I would say like, I kind of relate and being in that intersection of it, which I, I really enjoy. And I think that, you know, on the other camp, being a little bit more cliche, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk for me are kind of like big inspiration. Steve, because I think by the end, he owns 0.6% of Apple. And, you know, he didn't really care as much about it. He just really wanted to build the best products in the world. And I think that that's like really inspiring, you know, especially if the company's doing really well. I think a lot of growth founders have to refine that motivation when, you know, that's not only financial. And like, I think it's very inspiring to me that he truly cared about making the best products in the world for people. And I think Elon, you know, is very inspiring in terms of like just the hustle, right? Like he'll do anything to achieve the mission, very big, audacious goals. I think all those things are very inspiring to me. Nice. Love those. Now let's dive a bit deeper into Brex. So everyone listening in is a early stage or growth stage B2B founder. So everyone's going to know the name Brex, but could you maybe just expand on 
all the different product lines that you have today and the high level overview of what the company does? Yeah. So Brex, we do uh, corporate car travel and spend management software. So think about us today as replacing Amex plus Concur for businesses. And so we started a company with uh, corporate cards. Um, we then launched our business account that replaced your bank account. And then we launched kind of like our software seed product, which is empowered. It has travel and expense management. So those are kind of like the main areas that we play in. And obviously there's been a lot happening in this world over the last couple of months. So let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank. Did that affect you in a positive way or did that have a negative impact or did it have no impact at all? It's theme, I would say, you know, obviously like it's bad for the tech ecosystem and, you know, we have a lot of tech customers, so that's obviously bad. Obviously, like they were a super strong competitor in some areas for us. So not having a competitor helps. So I don't know. I would say that like overall, I was saddened by the whole thing because they were kind of like our first lender and they had a really positive impact on the tech ecosystem over the last four years, you know? And uh, I would say even with the potential benefits of not having a competitor, I would definitely rather have lived in a world where, where they survived. But like, look, the effects to our business, I would say the most impactful is that I think before this all happened, companies wanted to have one bank account. So they wanted to have like one place where they stole all their money and they get all the benefits. So it was hard for us because when we competed with JP Morgan or Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic, they were giving corporate accounts, plus they were giving loans for the founders, plus private banking, plus investment banking. So it was hard for us to compete in all those fronts for, for customers, right? And we are just really good at kind of core transactional banking, making payments, bill pay, running payroll, storing money. We don't have any of these kind of, uh, you know, ancillary products, but we're really, really good at the, you know, these things I described. And I think now most companies, they want to have more than one bank account. And it's much easier for us to win one of three than one of one, because they can say, hey, I'll use you for what you guys are good at. And then I'll use JP Morgan for what they're good at. And I'll use you know, someone else. And that's just really good for us. It's been really easy to acquire customers since then and uh, for you know the, the parts that we're really good at. And it just came out, I think, earlier today or maybe last night, an Axios article that mentioned you were making a bid or you did make a bid back in March to try to buy Silicon Valley Bank. What was that like you know, internally having those discussions when you were you know, all of a sudden making a bid to buy this institution that's so important and critical to Silicon Valley and the, the greater tech ecosystem? So we didn't make a bid to buy the entire bank. We made a bid to buy the early stage and growth stage card plus deposit portfolio, which is kind of like what overlapped with what we did. So it wasn't like a bid for the whole bank. We thought we could take care of these customers better than other buyers. And this is when the FDIC said they were open to selling the bank by parts. Mm -hmm. So we definitely tried to acquire these pieces of it. The idea actually came from a customer that said like, hey, why would you let you know, this portfolio go like some random bank, like you, you guys know so much more about how to serve startups and understand startups. And we thought, yeah, that makes sense. So that made us submit a bit. And when you think about the competitive landscape, who are your competitors? Is it the legacy established banking players or more the, the fintech startups? You know, who is that competitor? Who are some of those top competitors for you? Amex and Concur are definitely the main competitors. That's who we're seeing day in, day out. Some of the banks too, a little bit, but I would say those are the main ones. Got it. And how do you think about your market category? 
I know you mentioned there's a couple of different product lines. So it sounds like it's pretty spread, but is it corporate card management or what is that main category that you're operating in? Yeah, I would say the category isn't exactly the following. I think it's kind of forming right now between us and some competitors, which is this mix of like spend management software. So, you know, like expense management, travel, bill pay, and the actual financial services, right? So like corporate cards and banking all in one. I think it's a new category that's aggregating pieces of other categories. And, you know, it's very interesting. And are you proactively trying to create that category and shape the narrative around that category? Yes, but I would say we're not yet doing a really good job at it. You know, we, we, we could definitely do better on, on that respect. What are some of those areas that you would like to improve on? I think just in general, like, you know, first naming the category, right? I don't think, you know, we, we've done that yet. You know, building those like relationships with the analysts, kind of like uh, aggregating and describing like the category. I, I just don't think we've done kind of like enough work on it. Because we we basically relied today on being part of the expense management category and the banking category and the corporate card category. And we're kind of like now figuring out how do we merge all that in one. Okay, so let's talk about the early days of Brex. What was it about this problem that just made you say, yep, that's it, let's do it? Basically, when we were starting Brex, we actually started out as a VR company because we told ourselves that we weren't going to do fintech anymore. You know, like fintech was really hard. And... There's all these regulators, all these banks. Uh, we're going to do something the bleeding edge of technology, you know, something. So uh, we decided to try to do something in VR. And then we quickly realized that we had no idea what we were doing and decided to go back to FinTech. And the original idea is we wanted to build kind of like a next-gen B2B bank, but it seemed hard to start a bank from scratch. We saw a new bank uh, starting with a credit card and at YC, you know, talking to our partners, we talked that was a really good idea. So, okay, credit card before the bank. And then startups had this need that they raised a lot of money, four or $5 million, and they couldn't get a credit card. So we're like, okay, um, we're just going to do a credit card for startups. And that was, that was basically it. And when we look at those first paying customers that you secured, what was that process like? How'd you acquire those first customers? First customer is that was actually like a company called uh, Scale AI, which is doing really well right now. And basically, I think I was looking at their product and signed up for their product. And then the founder emailed me and said, hey, I heard it from you from some YC network. I'm 19, so I can't really get a credit card because I don't have FICO. Can you guys give me a credit card? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and funny enough, that first company grew to be now, you know, $7 billion company. And uh, still, still, still a customer. So, wow. Good customer retention. Yeah. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, you know, when I search your name online, I find a lot of glamorous stories about you and you're obviously very, very successful. You know, the company's killing it. But one thing I always like to ask about are the near-death experiences that you've experienced along your journey. Um, what I see is, you know, oftentimes those are the stories that don't make it into the media articles and it's just really, you know, glorified entrepreneurship, but not a lot of focus on the painful experiences that happen behind the scenes. So is there a near-death experience or just a painful experience that you could share with us? In my first company, it was a lot tighter. I'd say at Brex, like we always raised way more money than we spent. So 
you can only die from running out of cash, right? So there wasn't a lot near death. But in my first company, we raised $300,000 and that was the only money we raised. And there was this month where, you know, we had two months of runway and the, our investors said, figure it out. I'm not putting more money and I'm not letting you raise more money. And we basically had to like just grow enough in two to three months to pay for everything. And we were close, but like, you know, it was still not a slam dunk. So I just remember being in the office selling and getting everyone to sell, you know, as much as possible. And, and I think that having that strong of a pressure to sell is good from the perspective. It really forces you to find product market fit because if you are calling a customer and they don't really want what you're selling, they just won't pay you fast. Right. And we didn't have a long sales cycle to figure that out. We needed, we had a very short sales cycle. So. It really focused on like, how do we describe what we do in the simplest terms as fast as possible to get someone to pay us this month so we can make payroll, you know, over the next few months. Got it. Makes sense. And with Brex, did you get product market fit right away or did that take some time to really feel like you had product market fit? No, honestly, it was right away. I think that like when we started Brex, we knew that the risk wasn't like at that time, no one had been able to successfully launch like a credit card that was in a bank. So we knew that if we failed, it wouldn't be because we launched and no one wanted it. It would be because we couldn't launch because everyone needs a credit card. And why was no one else launching cards back then besides banks? Um, because it was really hard. Today, there's a lot of infrastructure, right? There's Marquette, there's Stripe issuing, there's like, you know, AirWallet, there's like five different companies that can help you launch a card and embedded finance is a thing and all that. That wasn't true when we started, right? So the only way was like, partnering a bank and convincing them to like rent, like lend you their license and get a bin from MasterCard, raise debt, raise equity, you know, it was a pretty big build out from day one. And we just knew how to do it because it's, we had done a payments company before and like we were technical and all that. And we found a good niche because B2B is also easier than B2C. So like just a bunch of stuff we did early on to make it launch. But like once we launched, we just knew that would be a hit. And something other startups struggle with a lot is positioning. Did you get the positioning right from the start or did that take some work for you to figure out how you were going to position yourself against, you know, the big players like Amex? I would say from the the first product we did, we got the positioning right by accident without knowing what position is. So it was very uh, lucky. It was like Rex, the corporate card for startups, we give higher limits, no personal guarantee, great rewards, right? Like impossible to not understand what we do and who we're for. After later on, I would say, once we launched other products, I would say like we didn't really know that we had to position them. So we didn't do a very good job and then it got more confusing. And now we're kind of back to a place where, you know, it is it is better, but like it was hard for the products like ahead of the first one. And you make all this stuff sound easy, you know, getting product market fit right, getting your positioning right, not having to you know really worry about capital, it sounds like for most of the journey. What do you think you got right when you were building Brex so that these problems, you know, weren't problems that you experienced? Again, I think like my first company, like we got so much of this stuff wrong that we just didn't repeat the same mistakes. But I think we made new mistakes in the middle of the journey, but not the same mistakes we had done in a previous company. Does that make sense? Yeah. What's the biggest mistake that you've made that you can uh, publicly share? I think, you know, the very public one was... um a product strategy mistake of going towards traditional SMBs versus kind of going more towards enterprise, which is where we are today. 
I think that was probably, you know, and we had to turn off a lot of customers, a lot of bad press around it. That was probably the worst mistake that we've done in terms of kind of like where to take the company. And we're correcting it. I mean, I think we're doing a really good job and, you know, we're definitely like in a really good place right now, but that's act two. We got act one really well. I think we, we screwed up act two. When you're on the receiving end of negative media, what do you do to manage your own psychology and make sure that, you know, you don't get overwhelmed and, and too stressed out? Because I'm sure that can't be easy to search your name, search the company name and, you know, find negative articles talking about some of the things that you're doing. I think it's like understanding this, like this too shall pass, you know, I think it's normal for humans to think that everyone is thinking about them a hundred percent of the time, but turns out people are just thinking about themselves most of the time. So I would say that like people think that, you know, you come one bad article, two bad articles, everyone's going to remember it forever, but you know, they're the next news cycle and the next news cycle, the next news cycle, right? And there's always something more interesting going on in your company. So I would say that just remember that this too shall pass. What about on the other side with all of the positive press? Do you ever have to you know, work proactively just to try to control, for lack of a better description, your internal ego and then just the confidence level of yourself and the team you know, when you're reading all this positive press? How do you make sure that doesn't go to your head, go to your team's head and distract from that mission and vision? Yeah, I would say like most times you hear entrepreneurs talking about this, the answer goes some version of like, oh, it's important to stay humble and grounded and stuff like that. But I think the reality is like, it's really hard to do that. I started being in the press when I was 14 years old. And if you have the whole world telling you you're a genius, you start believing it. And I think that the first step is acknowledging that it might happen to you, you know, that you're not immune to it. And, you know, thinking about, is it happening already? And having people around you that you trust, they can just call you out on it. And they explicitly have talks about like, hey, if I'm, if my ego is going crazy, like, please let me know, you know, please call me out. Because you, you really need to acknowledge that it could happen to you. It's, you're not immune to it, which I think a lot of founders think, like, that's never going to happen to me, right? But it does, like, it's really hard not to happen. So I don't know, I just build people around me and build systems so that they call me out. And, and the other thing is just accept that it will happen sometimes. And it's like, you just need to swing back to the other way. It's not the end of the world, right? It's not like, oh my God, like my ego got out of control. Now everything is doomed. No, like you just get it back there where it was, you know, just ground yourself and just like, it's going to happen again. And then you're going to need to ground yourself again. And it's, it's part of the journey. And, and the other way around is also true, right? If things are going bad, it doesn't mean that you suck, you know? I think that's the other one that I know a lot of founders that things were going well, their ego went up, but then when things were going poorly, like they were depressed. And I think the other way around is also, you know, very important to think is like, oh, actually, like, it doesn't mean because it's going badly now that you suck, you know, like you may have made some wrong decisions, but growth mindset is you learn from them and you keep moving. And something else I want to ask about is the co-CEO status that you have. So did that come from Larry Ellison? I, I know you'd mentioned him there as you know, a founder you admire, and I think Oracle still has that co-CEO structure. Is that where that inspiration came from? Or where did that come from? And what are some of the pros and cons of having a co-CEO? Um, not particularly, actually. I think, I'm not sure who does it. Like, we definitely heard of it, but like, I'm not sure who does it the same way we do it. But it works really well for us. So basically, you have internal versus external CEO. So I'm external. So that means I have zero direct reports, which I love. I'm not the best manager and don't love doing it. 
but I get to spend a lot of time with customers, you know, a lot of time with partners, a lot of time fundraising, you know, PR, anyone that needs to meet the CEO of Rex, like I just have more time than the average CEO to do those things. And that's, you know, really beneficial to the company. And same thing with Pedro, you know, he actually manages the whole company and he has more time, I would say, than the average CEO to do that because he doesn't need to worry about fundraising and foreign management and, you know, PR and all the other things CEOs do. And I think it like, just gets us to both spend more time on what we're really good at and, and be really great at it. And at the same time, I would say that like, I makes a lot of the external learnings that I have by meeting with like a lot of interesting people and of customers with his kind of like internal knowledge of what's happening, you know, in order to like how people are using the product and operations and all that to kind of come up with the product strategy and figure it out. So, and then we have each other to kind of riff on ideas and support each other through the journey. So it works really well. I would say that's probably one of the superpowers of Rex is our OCO structure. What are some of the other superpowers? I think a lot of your superpowers are also some of your weaknesses. So one of the superpowers that we have is I think we're relentless about getting better every day. So we're a hyper self-critical organization. Like you probably noticed me during this podcast mention a couple of things that we're not very good at. Um, and that we could be doing better. And I think that's like pretty representative of our internal culture, you know, like, and I think that, you know, it's good to some extent because we're also getting better, but I, I would say like, I would love to get better at the other side, which is celebrating our wins more and like, you know, having a culture where we feel we're winning all the time. I think we have a culture where we feel we're improving all the time and that can be a little bit negative. You know, I think we we definitely need to shift some balance. So but at the same time, I think we execute really, really well because of that, because nothing is ever good enough. We always need to get better. And, you know, everyone's pushing themselves all the time. Everyone is working really hard all the time, et cetera. And I'd love to talk a little bit about growth. So can you just share you know, any metrics or numbers that you're okay with sharing that just demonstrate the scale of Brex? Because I think for a lot of people listening in, it's, it's hard to fathom the scale that you're operating at. Yeah. So I would say you know, like a open revenue and headcount, we probably grew very fast. So we started a company back in 2017. We launched publicly. Maybe we had a hundred customers at the time and when June, 2018, by the end of 2019, we were crossing a hundred million and, you know, revenue. And this is our, our piece of the revenue. This is not TEP or anything like that. This is like really r- real revenue. Um, and you know, now we're into many hundreds of millions in revenue and we went from 2018, we have like 30 people to a hundred, 400, 600 to 1200 over the last six years. Or so definitely like pretty fast headcount growth. So yeah, that's roughly kind of our scale today. And on the funding side, what's the total raise so far? I, I think what I'd read on Crunchbase was 1.5 billion. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's correct. What have you learned from that? fundraising journey because that's a that's a lot of money and I, i'm sure there are some valuable lessons learned along the way i think the biggest lesson for me is you know like picking your partner is very important you know like i definitely love a lot of our investors i can't think of any major investor maybe some small ones but i can't think of any major investor that i don't like and i i regret and all that you know they've all been like super nice and supportive of us and trust us a lot i i would say that the biggest learning is if you don't spend, like trust is built with spending time. If you don't spend time with them, you don't build that trust. So in order to like maintain the relationship and get them to trust you and, and give you space to execute, you really need to build that trust. So I would say that's, and that requires spending time with them, uh, both before raising and then after raising. So I, I did a lot of that actually. And, you know, given the 12 plus billion dollar valuation, you know, 
10, 20 years ago, that would have been a public company, but you're, you're obviously still private. Are you tempted or do you often think about IPOs or is that something that you put off and, and think about at a later day? I would say we want to be a public company, but at the right time, I would say like, I think being a public company is good. I think it's being a volatile public company is terrible. So if you're a company and your stock varies, you know, obviously we're in crazy circumstances, but day to day, your stock varies 10% up, 10% down, you know, like, I think that's okay. If you're in a situation where like your stock goes up 50% a day and then goes down 50%, that's terrible. So we definitely want to go public at the time where we think, you know, the company is profitable and like we have, you know, growth rates a little bit slower and we have enough stability in the company in which we can have a a non-super volatile public company. Makes a lot of sense. Now, something every tech founder dreams of doing is is building a unicorn. I think that's the aspiration for anyone who's playing the the VC backed game, and yeah, you've more than more than achieved that. So, can you just talk us through what that day was like when you first crossed the billion dollar valuation threshold and and first realized that you had built unicorn? Was that a special day for you? Did you celebrate? Did it feel different for you, or was it just another day? You know, again, most founders would probably say like, oh, like valuation don't matter, you know, et cetera, like some politically aligned response. I actually was super happy about it. You know, it was like great day. It was awesome. It was like definitely a mark of an achievement and something that like I was really excited. I knew there was a lot of work ahead and we were very far from done. But like, and at the time we had founded the company maybe like a year and eight months, no, maybe a year and a half before. So getting there and so quickly and having the capital now to like go execute just had this like huge sea of relief. I'm like, okay, we have like maybe $200 million in our balance sheet now at the time, you know, to go execute on this, you know, we have a bunch of investors confident. There was some fear that like, oh my God, like we need to deliver this, but we actually crushed our plan that year. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a very happy day. And you've mentioned that a few times. So I'd also love to ask about that. So, you know, you said these are, you know, a normal founder would say this, but instead, you know, you're going to give us the real answer and, and tell us the truth and not, you know, PR spin that's sugarcoated and bullshit. So doing that, has that ever gotten you in trouble? You know, have you ever said something that maybe you shouldn't have said? Um, have you ever had any situations like that? Yeah, actually. And not that I got in trouble per se. It was more that like I said something that was pretty controversial and then I changed my mind on it years later. So uh, I remember like there's a video, I can't even know where it is, that like we're starting Rex and I kind of have a, a saying saying, hey, I don't believe like we're, we need to be like a mission driven company. I think like that doesn't make any sense. And I changed my mind a ton on it. And then people reference it sometimes like, no, I don't believe that anymore. I have to change my mind on it, you know, so that's funny. What else do you see out there that, you know, maybe just feels like kind of BS, whether it's, you know, founders saying it or investors. Is there anything else that you see just when it comes to company building that you strongly disagree with? One thing that, you know, we were always kind of like big believers of Brex is there's this like MO in Silicon Valley that says like, oh, if an employee doesn't want to come for like very low cash comp, it means they're not committed enough to the opportunity. And we know we have a model of Brex for the longest time where people can kick, can decide how much cash, how much stock they want out of a TCV number. And we looked at a lot of data and like, turns out there's no uh, correlation of performance or attrition for people who picked higher cash than higher stock. And the only thing that correlated is like, what are their living expenses? Do, we have, do they have kids? How many kids do they have? Where do they live? Do they have private school? And they have a mortgage they just got, right? Like all these things. And 
if they can't come to a startup because they have these things, doesn't mean that they're not committed. It just means they made those life decisions before. And you're just erring on the side of like people that are very young. So I actually think that that's some startup that and also titles. I think that's the other thing we measured is like, you know, do people perform better, less, better or worse based on titles? And like, turns out a lot of people that ask for titles perform really well, you know, and and then this whole thing was like, oh, if they ask for titles, they, they're like, they suck. And like, you know, I just, we just didn't find that to be true. Interesting. And based on your journey building Brex so far, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, if you were just starting the company again today from scratch, what would that piece of advice be? Talk more to customers. Early on, did you not talk to customers? Not early on, kind of middle on. Remember I was telling you that like act two, I think like we mm-hmm. could have caught a lot more of the stuff that we made mistakes if we just talk more to customers. I think it just gets very easy to think you know the customer after a while, but you don't. So I think like I talk a lot to customers now, but like I wish I just did more of it in the middle of the journey. That's the Silicon Valley cliche advice that is very good. (laughs) And final question for you. What's act three look like? What's this vision for Brex? What's going to happen over the next, let's say, three to five years? Yeah, I think like for us, you know, building this kind of global financial operating system, right? Like being the place where CFOs go to manage our business the same way Salesforce is for customer data or, you know, even service now is for IT. If we want to be that for, for finance. Amazing. I love it. All right. Well, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build alongside your co-founder and team, where should they go? Twitter. Awesome. Enrique, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, talk about the lessons learned and talk about Brex and take us behind the scenes of everything that's happening there. This interview has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I know our audience is going to as well. Thanks for having me. No problem. Keep in touch. 